So as I said, we're going through Ecclesiastes um, and, and hearing what Solomon had to say, the wisdom into really these two perspectives of with God and without God and helping us figure out okay, well, how do I add purpose to my life? How do I add meaning to my life? Got reminded of something this last week. In fact, a week ago today, last Sunday, I uh, was doing some yard work out uh, in our house, uh, outside of our house, and something happened that just sent shockwaves through the Haas household. I mean, it disrupted our family to no end. Uh, impacted myself, my wife, all of our kids. And, and here I was trying to do something good, and it just turned out terrible. So I'm outside working, I was edging the front of the yard and just making things look nice after church on Sunday. And then I moved over to the side of the yard, started edging and working through. And you know how it goes, like those little flower beds get weeds and all sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm edging through on that side and, and something happens. Notice as I'm edging, I cut through something. Now I didn't get electrocuted, so I knew it wasn't an electrical line. Nothing blew up, so I'm assuming it wasn't a gas line. And as I looked a little bit closer, I, I had a suspicion that this was our internet line that I had cut through. Yes. So after cutting through, I, I go in the house to, to test my hypothesis. Okay, how is it do, am I actually getting any Wi-Fi? And sure enough, pull up my phone, no Wi-Fi whatsoever. I'm getting ready to say something to Becky, and my oldest, Connor, says, Dad! <laughs> yeah, buddy. Something's wrong! <laughs> What's going on? Netflix doesn't work! I'm like, I know, I know, it was an accident. I was edging, cleaning up the side of the yard, and I accidentally cut through the internet cable. <laughs> Dad, why would you do that? I'm like, Connor, it was an accident. I was working in the yard, and I accidentally cut the line. So is it broke? Well, yeah, the, the, the line is cut in half. Can you fix it? Well, I'm going to call the company and, and see when they can come out and fix it. And he says, but why did you cut the cable? I'm like, dude, leave it alone. So I call the company, let them know what happened. They said, not a problem. We'll send somebody out. They'll be out there Wednesday. Connor hears this conversation. He says, dad, when are they fixing it? I said, they said they would be out here sometime Wednesday. Wednesday? We have to go a whole week without internet. And I'm like, Connor, it is Sunday. Wednesday's not a whole week. And you're in school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you're talking like the rest of today, you're going to notice there's no Wi-Fi in our house. Dad, why did you cut the internet? He couldn't get past it. So I finally, I had enough and I said something. And man, I'm telling you, as soon as I said this, I, I recognized I've hit a threshold in my adulthood. I looked at him and I said, son, when I was your age, I didn't even know what the internet was. <laughs> and as soon as I said, I was like, no, I'm that old dad. I've officially become the old dad that says when I was your age, this didn't exist. Couldn't believe it, couldn't believe it. So I thought we'd move past that. Monday, I get home from work. He's had a great day at school. I said, Connor, how was your day at school? Good. I told the teacher what you did to our internet. <laughs> I can't win with him. Just so you know, our internet got fixed and there is now harmony back in the Haas household. <laughs> We're okay. We survived. Thank you. Thank you. But it reminded me of, of things that can easily be taken away or cut in, in that instance there. Where for my, my kids, it was just an expectation. 
Like that's all they've known. But if you're like me, old dad apparently, think back to before you had internet or at least easily accessible internet to when you finally got it, to when it finally became Wi-Fi in your house and you started getting it on your phone. When we first experienced it, it was a gift from heaven, wasn't it? It was like, this is amazing. I didn't know I needed it, but now I know I need it. This is great and we're so thankful. And, and we gave a lot more grace when it didn't work very well back then, didn't we? Oh, no, that's okay. At least we have it some of the time. But now when it goes away, what has happened? We can put a person on the moon, but we can't have strong Wi-Fi? And like Connor, who doesn't know any different, it's not a gift. It's an expectation. And we respond very, very different to gifts versus expectations. And sometimes in life, we need to be reminded what truly is a gift and what truly is an expectation or what should be. An expectation. Most of the things that we now expect, I would guess, need to go back and we need to have that perspective of it's really a gift once again. So that's what we're going to look at. If you got your Bible, head over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to see the author who we make some good assumptions at is Solomon, wisest man ever. And he writes specifically on kind of this gift versus expectation. And the word that he uses a lot through what we're going to look at is money and wealth. Money and wealth, things that originally seemed to be a gift. Wow, this is great. Thank you. I needed that. All of a sudden has become an expectation, an expectation that when it doesn't go the way that we want, we get upset, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get disappointed, we get discouraged, and we pursue, in fact, more and more and more after something. Gift versus expectation. Because money and wealth is, of course, a major part of our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. But how we interact with it, can have some implications that could lead us down a road that, as Solomon is explaining, really goes into two categories, two, two parts here. You have the with God side and the without God. And that's what he's doing through Ecclesiastes. Through his writing, he's saying, here's what life looks like without God. And he says it very early on in chapter one, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, utterly, what's the word? Meaningless. Without God, yes, all of those things in our life are meaningless. But then he flips it over and says, but with God, oh, with God, he adds meaning and he adds purpose and he adds intentionality to your life. The same is true as we're going to see with our finances, with money, with our wealth, with our stuff. We're not just talking money as in paycheck, but we're talking the things we accumulate, the things that we have, the things that we possess, maybe even obsess over. What does it look like when it's with God versus without God. Now, as we jump in, if you're taking notes, which for today I would encourage you to, there's going to be three numbers I want you to write down. Three, two, and one. We're going to kind of, that's going to be our progression this morning. Three, two, and one. We're going to look at three observations that Solomon makes regarding our wealth and our money. Three observations. And he does that a lot through Ecclesiastes. He says, here's what I've observed. Here's what I've seen. So he makes three observations regarding the wealth and the things that we chase after. Three observations from Solomon. Then we're going to look at a story Jesus tells, and we're going to see two perspectives we should have regarding the stuff that we have, regarding our wealth, regarding our finances and our money. Three observations from Solomon, two perspectives we get from a parable Jesus is going to tell, and we're going to end with one prayer we need to all pray. Three observations, two perspectives, one prayer, and how we can figure out how to add meaning to something that is not just part of our life, but a major part of our life and an important 
part of our life as well. So let's pick it up. Let's look for these three observations Solomon makes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Here's the first observation he makes. Solomon writes, those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. This too is, say it with me, we see it a ton in this book, this too is meaningless. There it is. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of laborers is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But look at this. But the abundance of the rich permits them no sleep. Observation number one, the pursuit of wealth is meaningless. The pursuit of wealth leaves you empty. That's what meaningless means. We talked about that several weeks ago. It's void. It's empty. It's like vapor trying to wrap your hands around it, trying to grab it. And as soon as you think you've got it, it's gone. The pursuit. Now, he says that it's not money itself. It's not wealth itself. It's not obtaining things or stuff that leaves us empty. He says it's those who love money, those who love wealth. In other words, those who pursue it, who chase after it, that stop at nothing to get it, that once getting it, hold on tightly to it and never want to let go of it. Those that pursue wealth leaves them empty. Here's why that leaves us feeling empty. If you were here with this kind of recap, a few weeks ago, we looked at a passage where Solomon writes that God had put eternity in the hearts of every single person. He put eternity in your heart and in my heart. That's where there's that sense of something more. We feel like there's something more. There's something bigger. There, we looked at that picture of the galaxy. There's just something more. And what tends to happen, if you live in a world without God, that sense of more only feels like it can be filled with stuff, which we know it leaves us feeling emptier and emptier. And so we strive for more, we pursue for more and more and more, and thus the vicious cycle. Now, with a life focused on God, that feeling of more right, that eternity in our hearts, that actually draws us closer to God. So when God's the foundation of your life, that sense of more draws you closer to God. Eternity's been set in the heart of man. But without God in your life, it leads you spiraling down into a world of meaningless, meaninglessness because you have a sense for more, so you try to fill it with more stuff, not God. Therefore, you still feel empty, needing more, and you know how that goes. The pursuit of wealth leaves you feeling empty. Now, there's a question that we all have asked at some point. It's a question that even a lot of research have asked is, well, how much is enough? Right here, Solomon says, it's never enough. Those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. A research group, the Gallup Research in, in Group, actually put that to the test. They went out and polled tons of Americans about their income and if they deem themselves rich, and if not, how much would they need to be rich? So they started with a group that made about a household income of around $50,000 a year. And they went to that group and said, do you consider yourself rich? What do you think they said? No. So they said, okay, so what do you think you need to be rich? Where's the line? When is enough enough? And that group about said on average, about an income of $100,000 a year, that would make us rich. We would have enough. So that research group, they went to a group of people that made about $100,000, asked them the same question. Do you consider yourself rich? What do you think they said? You are correct. No. Well, how much do you think you need to be considered rich? We need around $200,000, $250,000 annually to be taken care of and, and have everything that we need, and that would be enough. So they went to a group of people that made about $200,000, $250,000 a year and asked them, do you think you're rich? What do you think they said? Exactly. You see how this goes. 
The line for more keeps getting pushed out. Rich is unbelievably subjective. And it constantly leaves us pursuing something that leaves us empty and therefore leaves us wanting more. Observation number one, the pursuit of wealth leaves us feeling empty. He goes on to his second observation, verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil, uh, a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that then they, when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Observation number two is the uncertainty of wealth. He observes the uncertainty of wealth. You have it, then you don't. Then you have it, then you don't. Feels like our economy right now, doesn't it? It's up and it's down, and it's up and it's down. And we feel like we're on top, and then we're bottomed out. He says, there's, there's no knowing, it's uncertain. And he points out two main uncertainties. One, the uncertainty of what wealth will actually do to you. He says he had seen what wealth hoarded did to certain owners. It actually harmed them. So you don't always know what it's going to do to you. You also don't know if you're always going to have it. It says here, or wealth lost through some misfortune. Things happen and we lose it. Maybe it's for a season, maybe it's forever. The uncertainty of our wealth, the uncertainty of our stuff. Observation number one, the pursuit of wealth leaves us empty. Observation number two, wealth is uncertain. Observation number three, the last thing he observes regarding our wealth and our money, verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. In other words, the way you came is the way you go, with nothing. Observation number three is you can't take it with you. No matter how much you accumulate, no matter how much we get, no matter how much we possess, at the end of our lives, we walk away with none of it. So the pursuit of wealth leaves us empty, meaningless. Wealth is uncertain, it's chasing after the wind. And at the end of our lives, we all go the way we came, with nothing. So there he starts to make this divide of life with God, life without God. And here he's focusing on Without God, the pursuit of wealth, here's what he's observed, those three observations. And it's almost like he's giving a little bit of a caution, a little bit of a warning of, he's not telling you what to do with your money, he's not telling you what to do with your wealth, he's just saying, here's what I've seen wealth do to people. Here's what I've seen people do when they're pursuing wealth. Here's how I've seen wealth impact the lives of other people. He's just making an observation, but there's almost a little bit of a warning in there. Three observations. Now let's go to the two perspectives. Jesus gives a very stern warning. You don't have to guess. There's, no impl there's nothing implied. Jesus is very upfront and blunt about the warning and caution he gives, which is going to help us with these two perspectives. If you have your Bible, head over to Luke chapter 12. We'll stand here, stay here the rest of our time this morning. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 15. Here's what Jesus said to a group of people. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Understand greed is not just referring to money and finances. It's referring to anything that you want more of. So that could be all kinds of things. It could be status. It could be popularity. It could be fame. You name it. It says beware, caution, heads up, warning, watch out, be on your guard. Because there's all kinds of things that make us want more, pursuing more. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Look at this last line. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That was worth getting here for. 
Jesus says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he gives a big warning. He doesn't just say, guard yourself. What were those two words he said at the very beginning? Do you remember? Watch out. Say, watch out with me. One, two, three. Sort of. You got to say, watch out like you're actually telling somebody to watch out. Try it again. Say, watch out. That's it. Yes, it's watch out. It's, it's heads up, it's pay attention, it's be careful. In our household with three kids, we say watch out a lot. It's watch out, the oven's open. Watch out, the stove is on. Watch out, there's Hot Wheels cars all over the hardwood floors. Watch out, your brother has a baseball bat running around. Watch out, there's a car coming. No, really, watch out, there is a car coming. We constantly are saying watch out. And here's why we say watch out. We say watch out because somebody else doesn't see what we see. We say watch out because we see something dangerous that someone else does not see. We say watch out because we are aware of something dangerous that someone else might not be aware of. We say watch out because we see where this life is going to go. Jesus says watch out. I see something that you don't see. Jesus says watch out because I'm aware of a danger that you might not think is very dangerous. Jesus says watch out because I know where this life is gonna lead, he says. So he says, watch out, stay on your guard against all kinds of greed. Then he tells this story, saying watch out and stay on your guard wasn't enough, so he tells a parable, a fictional story to get a point across. Here's the story he tells regarding the watch out. Verse 16, so he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Isn't that a great place to be? In other words, I've got so much money, I've got so much stuff, I don't know what to do with it all. I don't even know where to put it all. How many of you are in that spot right now? I didn't think so. If so, we should probably meet up a little bit later today. <laughs> I'll help you. <laughs> no, of course not, right? No, we wouldn't see ourselves in that place necessarily. We might say we're rich or we might say I can be content, but to this extent, here's a man that had an incredible year, super successful, tons of favor and has so much he doesn't know what to do with it all. He cannot, cannot figure out what to do with it all. So he asks this question, and it's a great question to ask. What shall I do with it? Now, I don't want you to think this about this question in the sense of this man. I have so much, what should I do with it? I just want us to ask the question, what should I do with what I have? Let's start there. That's the question that's gonna fuel these two perspectives in a moment. What should I do with what I have? That's the question this man is asking. And based on his response, we're gonna see it go down one of two different ways. What should we do with what we have? He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Verse 18. Then he said, he made a decision. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store, circle the word store, we're gonna come back to it. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat drink and be merry. Isn't that what we want in life? Right? That sometimes is our goal. Oh, we just want to take life easy. We want to eat, drink, and be merry. This is why you have to be careful of taking Bible verses out of context. Well, Jesus said, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You got to read it in context. <laughs> but that's our goal. Oh, I want to retire early. Oh, I just want to be able to sit back and do nothing. I want to wake up when I want to wake up. I only want a job that I go to when I want to go to it. I'm going to take all those dream vacations. Well, he stored it up so that he could get to that goal. Let's see how Jesus describes his decision. 
Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it'll be with those who store, there's that word again, those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Jesus starts and says, watch out. (laughs) There's a danger up ahead you might not see and be aware of. So we get back to that question, well, what shall I do with what I have? With as much or as little as I have, what should I do? We had our three observations. Now here's our two perspectives that we get from this story Jesus told. Perspective number one, view wealth as a gift, not the goal. View view wealth, your stuff, your possessions, your money. View your wealth as a gift, not the goal. When it is the goal, we stop at nothing to get it. And once we get it, we hold tightly to it, never to let go of it. We run over people. We forget about people. We sacrifice things we probably shouldn't sacrifice to obtain that one goal. Versus a gift, very different response. Two famous words that almost come out naturally unless you're under the age of 10 when you're given a gift. What are those two words? Thank you. You get a gift and all of a sudden it's a thank you. Let's test this out. That was just a hypothesis of if you're given something, if you're given a gift, I'm assuming you will say thank you. Let's actually try this out. I actually have, I have a gift. In fact, it's a Starbucks gift card. I know, it's an amazing thing. So I'm gonna give this gift right here because it pays to sit on the front row. Remember that next time you're here. So here is a gift for you. There you go. And she said, thank you. Can you believe it? She said, thank you. And not only did she say thank you, you can't see her, but her face is beaming. She is so happy. She's like, this is why we come to church, kids. Oh, fine. This is, I didn't expect this. This is wonderful. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Oh, it's just the greatest day of your life. She said, thank you. There was appreciation. Gift. It would have been a very different response if that was an expectation, wouldn't it? The response would have been more of like a, about time. (laughs) I mean, we've been sitting here for almost an hour listening to music and listening to you preach and on and on and on you go. Finally, thank you for giving me what I have been waiting for. She could have said, that's it. I mean, it is only a $5 gift card, so you're talking like a a drink, right? Not a drink. That's it? Like, after all of this, that's all I'm, I'm getting a $5 gift card to say, you know, it's not even worth my time. Not even worth the gas to go there, probably. Different responses, isn't it? Gift versus expectation. Gift of what we've been given versus a goal we expect to obtain at some point. That's why we say things like, God, that's it? God, that's, that's all I'm getting out of this? This is all you're giving me right now? That's, that's not gonna work. That's not gonna be enough. Don't you know? Well, that speaks to expectation, doesn't it? Versus, God, thank you so much. I, I can't believe what you're doing for me. I can't believe you're showing up in this way. God, thank you. Our response to a gift is always gratitude and thankfulness and appreciation. View your wealth as a gift not the goal. Solomon speaks to this gift. We were in chapter five earlier. We're gonna go back to it just for a quick second. Here's what he says towards the end of his observations. He says this. 
And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy. Did you catch that? It's not a bad thing. The man in the story that we just read, that Jesus told, it wasn't a bad thing that this man was successful, that he had wealth, that he had so much, in fact, he wasn't sure what to do with it. That's not the bad thing. The reason God called him a fool is because of how he answered that question, what shall I do with it? He chose to store it up. He chose to hold on to it. He saw it as something he earned and deserved, not a gift from God. Solomon says, enjoy what God's given you. Last part of what he says, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. Enjoy the gift that God has given you. Be thankful for what he has given you. Well, it doesn't feel like enough. It's never going to feel like enough. Observation number one, the pursuit of wealth leaves you feeling empty. Never is enough. So let's change our perspective. View wealth as a gift, not the goal. First perspective. Here's the second perspective. To view wealth as a tool to use rather than a treasure to hold on to. Treasures are intended to hold tightly. Treasures are meant to hide, to bury, to store up, like we saw the man do in the parable. Do everything we can to keep it and hang on to it. Tools are meant to be used. Here's one of my tools. No, this is not one of the tools used in the incident as of last Sunday. <laughs> Could have been, though. But it's, it's a shovel. And so what do I do with my shovel? Well, we dig with the shovel, we build things with the shovel. We move things from place to place with the shovel. We do yard work with the shovel. I mean, it has a lot of great uses. Could you imagine what it would be like if I viewed my shovel as my most prized possession? If this became my treasure, this is my shovel that I hold and love dearly. Don't even look at my shovel. This is not your shovel. You get your own shovel. I had to work hard for this shovel. Do you know how many hours of overtime I put in just to get this shovel? It is kind of a nice shovel though, isn't it? I mean, come on now. Good looking shovel. Bam, there it is. You like that shovel? That's right. A lot went into getting this shovel. One day, this shovel, I'm going to hand this down to my kids. Because I won't be here forever. So I've made sure they've got a great shovel. So when I go... I get to hand them my shovel and they will be set for life because of this shovel. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It is a shovel. It is meant to be used, not held on to. So often we view our wealth as a treasure to just hold tightly to. But God has given you a shovel to use for something great, to use for someone else. Yes, your family, yourself, but other people. It's not meant to held on, be held on to. It's meant to be used. Proverbs says it this way, which Solomon wrote a good chunk of Proverbs. He says in uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. So you have that one side. One gives freely and grows all the richer. Another one withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Why is that? Because it's never enough, is it? You hold on to what you have and you think it's gonna be enough, but it's never enough, so you end up suffering want time and time again. Go back to observation number one. So perspective number one, we do our two perspectives. View it as a gift, not the goal. Second one, all that God has given you, whatever God has given you, it's to be used as a tool. It's a shovel. It's not a treasure. 
And the moment you start treating what God has given you as a, as a treasure, you started to pursue the very thing that we're called to not pursue. See, the Christian life is, it has a bad rap when it comes to finances sometimes. And let me just be very clear. Nowhere is Jesus or Solomon telling you how to budget, how to spend your money, what you're supposed to give it all to, and all this stuff. No, Solomon says, I've, I've observed these three things. Here's what I've seen. Jesus, through this parable, says we need to talk about your perspectives of wealth, of money, of being rich. If you get the observations and you get the perspectives, I'm going to leave it up to you to ask the question, okay, God, what should I do with what I have? There's the question. And may the observations and the perspectives drive your answer to that question. Jesus, here's what you've given me. What should I do with it? What good do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to love others with this? Who can I bless because of this? See, as I said, the, the Christian faith has a bad rap when it comes to finances. Usually we make people feel bad for having a lot. Solomon said, enjoy what God has given you. Still make the right choice with what you choose to do with it. Sometimes when we talk about finances in the church, it's, oh no, Pastor's gonna start talking about tithing and giving to the church again. I'm not gonna say any of that. That's between you and the Lord. What you do with your shovel is between you and Jesus, not me. See, the Christian life is not a vow of poverty. It's not trying to go through life having absolutely nothing. It's also not on the flip side. The Christian life is not a promise of prosperity. Follow Jesus and you'll get rich quick. Not true at all. <laughs> You get a lot of shovels. <laughs> the Christian life, the faith that we have, is following Jesus wholeheartedly. That's it. That's it. It doesn't have anything to do with how much or how little we have. It's giving him all of us. It's giving him all of us. At the end of that parable that Jesus told, the very end, there's a line that's pretty famous. You've probably heard of it. He says, for where your treasure is, and finish it with me if you know it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So where is your heart? Better question is, where's your treasure? That gives you a lot more insight. And what tends to happen is, whatever we treasure, we hold super tightly to, don't we? We don't want to let go of it. We've worked too hard for it. We've tried to get so much of this. It's become the goal. To let go of it seems impossible. But here's what I know. If you truly want to give your life to Jesus and you truly want to let him live in your heart, it actually starts with open hands. You cannot surrender your heart to Jesus without first opening your hands to Jesus. Because we try to surrender our hearts and, and invite Jesus in and we say, okay, Jesus, you can have my heart, but I've got everything else. <laughs> Jesus, you can have my heart, but I'm not letting go of this. I've worked too hard for this. I got to hang on to this. It's not giving him your heart. You wanna give Jesus your heart, you open your hands. We did three observations, two perspectives. I said, we're gonna end with one prayer. It's a prayer of surrender, where we say, Jesus, my hands are open. I will not hold tightly to anything. So here's what I'm gonna have you do. If you'll, right now, just hold your hands like this. This is the posture of surrender. You hold your hands open, because you're not holding tightly to anything. 
You hold your hands open. You say, Jesus, everything that you've given me is a gift. Everything that I have is yours. Take it when you need to. Leave it when you want to. Everything I am, everything I have is yours, but it begins with open hands. I'm gonna put a prayer up on the screen. We're gonna read it together. I can't make you mean this in your heart, but maybe this is at least your next step. Hands, hands open, arms out. Let's pray this prayer together. Make this your own. Jesus, I trust you. I trust that you love me and will take care of me. All that I have is a gift from you. Help me to see all that you have already given me. Thank you. Use what I have been given for your purpose. Help me to see how to love others with what you have given me. My hands are open. My life is yours. My heart is set on you and you alone. Jesus, we come before you, hands open, surrendering to you. Not just our heart, every part of our life, everything that you give, have given us, we recognize as a gift and we say thank you. And we keep our hands open to let you use our lives any way that you see fit. The things that you've given us, God, you have the permission and the ability to take at any point. So we do not pursue anything except you. We do not pursue wealth, we do not pursue stuff, we solely pursue you and enjoy what you have given us. We thank you for what you have given us. We live to use our shovels. So Jesus, take our hearts, take our lives. They are yours. We hold nothing back, but we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.